0: On this week's episode of The 21st Rewrite, we have a special discussion about Particular Disposition, the winner of the Playwriting Category at the 2018 Austin Film Festival, with the author himself, Benjamin Folk. It was wonderful to be able to talk to Benjamin, and I hope you really gain a lot from listening to this conversation. This kind of access to a writer reveals the mechanics behind the process. We talk about the choices he made and the themes of his story, as well as how finding the confidence to include his own regrets and insecurities guided the development and created a story that will truly touch the hearts of those that read it. Benjamin is a young writer with a bright career ahead of him, as the award at Austin demonstrated. Above all, I think you will really appreciate hearing what particular disposition is all about. It was inspired by a true story. In 1836, two men named James Pratt and John Smith were publicly executed outside Newgate Prison in the city of London for committing a homosexual act, or the crime of sodomy, as it was called at the time. Before he died, John Smith wrote a letter to a friend which contained the words, The grave will soon close over me, and my name entirely forgotten. Now thanks to Benjamin Folk's passion for the story, a new assessment can be offered. As a modern audience, we can reconsider the legal system that allowed the state to execute gay men up until 1835. It only stopped being a crime in the United Kingdom in 1967 and declassified as a mental illness in 1973. The age of consent was made equal with heterosexual acts in the year 2000. You will be able to listen to the full discussion shortly, but just to give you a bit of context, I will give you a brief overview of the plot of the first part of the play. The story opens in September 1835 at the Old Bailey in London, where James Pratt, John Smith and William Bonnell are on trial. William's landlord, George Berkshire, gives his testimony against them, insisting William is guilty too. Following the proceedings, William's lawyer reveals his own prejudices. If they offer you a deal, he advises, take it. That's the only way you're getting out of this alive. I've saved far worse people than you. The second scene jumps forward to William Bonnell on the convict ships that are transporting him to Tasmania. A mysterious woman begins to ask him about his situation. She states that she is just someone who wants to help, and challenges his account of the story. William has survived, but James and John have been executed. William is drinking himself into oblivion, snidely remarking to the woman, You can't feel the pain of the past if you can't remember it. Soon it is revealed that the other convicts can't see the woman he believes he is talking to. Is she a ghost? And why is she following him? The play then returns back in time to tell the story of how William introduced James to John and James fell in love. Both men's personal lives are revealed. John lives at home with his mother and is tortured by religious guilt. James lives with his wife Elizabeth, who knows about his sexuality and tolerates his relationships with men. The final flashback takes us back to 1793, and shows how William in his youth fell in love with a boy named Parker, but was never able to admit how he truly felt in order to keep him in his life. After their relationship is discovered by William's sister Nora, the family falls apart, and later when Nora is in danger, William does nothing to save her. The mix of shame and personal responsibility will lead his character down a dark path from which he feels there is no return. Yet the mysterious woman insists that he must forgive himself, Faced with this question, William comes to realize what he may have done differently if he had been true to himself and challenged the world that oppressed him for his sexuality. So the characters to remember are the couple, James and John, who will be executed, and James's wife, Elizabeth, and also William Bonnell, who turns out to be the main character in this story and the woman who only he can see. Without further ado, here is the 11th episode of the 21st rewrite particular disposition. Hello and welcome to the 21st Rewrite. I'm William Coldwell, and I'm joined as always by my good friend and co-host Alan Vasquez.
1: And today was a special episode. We are joined by playwright Benjamin Folk and he is joining us on Skype from Indiana, much younger than I imagined actually. Really?
2: Yeah, no, when I read it, I don't know, I felt like,
1: I don't know why, I just was imagining you're, someone watching this. Yeah, it.
2: you're not the, the first person to say that. Um, many people thought I was an old man. Um, I was kind of
1: picturing an old man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I was like,
2: no, I'm just, uh, I'm, well, I'm 30 now. I started it seven years ago. Most people at, Austin, at the Austin Film Fest thought I was going to be this old man. I was certain that I wasn't going to win. I just kind of had it in the back of my mind, like I'm just going to enjoy myself, not going to go in expecting anything. There's an award ceremony, they call your name and I had no idea what to say when I got up there. Um, My voice was all raspy and everything (laughs) because I was, you're you're literally talking the entire festival to everyone and your voice just goes. And uh, so I was trying to, Say something, you know?
1: Awesome. Well, congratulations. It was
2: a great honor. So,
1: and if you want to just, you know, tell us a little bit about yourself, you know, where you grew up and when you started writing.
2: Yeah. So, I was born and raised here in Indiana. Family, as I was growing up, uh, we constantly traveled basically everywhere across North America, South, and around the world. Um, With the college at Indiana State, originally went for an English degree. And then I was taking an intro to theater for non-majors and I was like, this is a whole lot better. I, I wanna jump ship and go over to the, the fun crowd. So I switched my major that first year, started taking playwriting classes, and I was like, This is this is for me. So I loved it ever since.
1: Nice. Awesome. One of my my questions is when did you come across this this story and, and how did that come to be?
2: Yeah, so it was while in college that I was doing a, a project concerning Charles Dickens. And I was going through his collection of stories by Bose. That was kind of a, a lot of his early work. And when he was uh, in his 20s and 30s working for a newspaper, he was doing all these stories. And I came across one where he visited Newgate Prison uh, in 1835. It's, it's a full account of everything that he saw. And then um, there's just this little teeny tiny section where he's mentioning in, in pretty vague terms these individuals that were kind of separated from everyone else. And he, he asked why they were in isolation when no one else was. And, you know, he was told um, for, uh, because they were involved in sodomy and uh, they couldn't uh, trust them with the other inmates. Um, so they had to keep them separate, was their excuse. Other historians, way smarter than me, uh, connected the dots of when he was there, because uh, he was there in November of 1835. You know, it's just a little footnote in that story, and um, something about it sparked the imagination, and I wanted to know more. Who were these people? And of course, being in college, that led to Wikipedia uh, as the first resource. Kind of got a uh, a little bit of information was sent to a bunch of different articles, and it just kind of snowballed from there. And I just couldn't let it go. I, I wanted to know more about it.
0: Mm. So that's that's really fascinating that Charles yeah. Dickens intersected with this particular story. It's a nice link to the modern day. And this is yeah. one of the things we really love finding in in our show, in the 21st Rewriters, just how far back some of these links to history go, even Mm. though we're talking about things that are being written recently. Mm. Suddenly we have Charles Dickens uh, being mentioned.
1: I saw that on Wikipedia when I was doing my own research, and I thought that was a very fascinating link to that. This is based on a real account. These were the last two men that were hanged because of sodomy.
2: Yeah, so James Pratt and John Smith, um, they were the last two, uh, like you said, the last two men to be hanged in England for sodomy in 1835. There hadn't been a, a public hanging or a hanging period um, in England at that time for, for two years mm. um, and was primarily just transporting people to to Van Diemen's land or what we would call Tasmania now mm. to, uh, to penal colonies and instead of actually executing them. So whenever they were executed uh, in the fall of 1835, it was a big public event. Um, hundreds of people were there. Pamphlets and flyers and every it was all in the newspapers because a lot of those newspapers, luckily for me, were saved and were digitized. Oh, wow. um, so so you got to read the actual news articles. I believe it's Harvard has a copy of the original pamphlet that uh, they were passing out the morning of, and which the pamphlet is where part of the the title comes from. The title of the pamphlet was the. De- particulars of the execution of james pratt and john smith and it was kind of that particular um, bit that you know sparked the the writer in me wanting to create a title in the vein of say oscar wilde something that he would come up with and so particular disposition kind of came about as a roundabout way of calling you know saying someone's gay someone's right um you know
1: no, it's a great title. I really love the title, and it's it's really fascinating that you actually found these articles. So, what was the entry point for setting up the first act? Like, what was your inspiration to? Because you go back and forth uh, in time. You know, you start off in court, and then you kind of go into flashbacks and and flash forwards. But what made you decide to start in court as they're questioning? the man who turned them
2: in. Yeah. So the, the courtroom scene is basically, it's, it's a cheat for the writer. It was a cheat for me to give a bunch of detail in a, in the most realistic way possible that it doesn't feel like an info dump, even though it is an info dump. It's trying to give the audience as much information as possible in a short amount of time um, while still being engaging. And allowing you to enter this world and what the criminal justice system was like, kind of the, the sensibilities of the average barrister or judge in these courts and the average layman is what a layman as well. When it comes to uh, George Berkshire, the landlord who um, owned the property that they were found at, but, but yeah, so, you know, you, you kind of need to, basically give the audience all this information because unlike a screenplay a stage play you have only so much amount of time to cover all this information and you can't quickly jump to a a whole new location in an instant like you can cut in a film you you're basically stuck in the scene sure there there have been other stage plays that have tried to mimic the the screenplay cut but um, it becomes a little jarring. Yeah, so you're basically stuck in one location for a while and you, you need to make that as engaging as possible.
0: And I wanted to ask in particular about the the epitaph that you chose. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm guessing that wouldn't actually be read out on stage. It's just there for the reader in the published version?
2: Uh, yeah, so yeah, it's just it would just be there in the published version. The epitaph is the a quote from Christopher Isherwood's uh, novel *A Single Man*, and it deals a lot with the the past uh, influencing the present, and about this individual uh, George in in the story *A Single Man*, really kind of thinking back onto the past and still holding on to it and uh, unable to let go a bit, and you know he he decides to kill himself in the book and. Um, because he, he, he can't find a way forward. And, of course, at the end, he decides to try, which the epitaph um, hints to is um, he, he dies of a heart attack. You know, life decided it was going to end regardless of what he wanted to do. But um, it really was one of those things where the, the theme of it, the idea of that story uh, influenced this one. Christopher Isshord's one of the many English authors that are referenced either in a very subtle way or sometimes in an overt way if you know the actual line. That's, that's all throughout the, the piece.
0: I'm going to read that out just so that everyone knows what it is. But the now isn't simply now. Now is also a cold reminder. One whole day later than yesterday. One year later than the last year. Every now is labeled with its date rendering all past nows obsolete until later or sooner, perhaps. No, not perhaps, quite certainly, it will come. I really feel that it does embody the spirit of, mm-hmm. in particular, your principal character in this play, William, who is an aging man. He, we see him for the majority of the play in his, his old age Mm-hmm. And he is the most interesting character for us to follow. And the main story of the play isn't necessarily just about the, the two men who are executed. It's really about William and the choices that he made, the life he led up until that point that made him make this choice to hand his friends over to the authorities and try and save himself, even though it meant death
2: for them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, this is William's play, even though it it kind of is centered around the execution of James and John. William, their their mutual friend, who is in his uh, late sixties, is is the the center of the piece. And you know that that was something that was not there at the beginning with writing it. Originally, it was pretty straightforward account of of James and John and the events leading up to to the hanging. And what changed it was I, I saw a production of Peter Schaeffer's Amadeus, and it was the first time I ever seen it live. I, I've read it, and then I saw the, the film version, which is much different than the stage version. Film version is still great, but, but that play is really centered around Salieri, and Mozart's kind of a, a, in the background. And you you get this whole new perspective and how that new perspective allows you to examine things in, in different ways that the traditional story doesn't allow you to look at or examine. And you kind of delve into these different depths of of the characters themselves as well as the the society and how an individual becomes the person that they are which really uh, interested me on telling that kind of uh, that arc
0: yeah i think i think you can tell as you get to learn the stories of james and john that they were originally conceived as being fully fleshed out characters because we do see them having differing views of how mm-hmm. to how to live it's illegal and could mean death and they've both taken these different approaches so so james actually is married and has children with his wife Mm -hmm. and then john he still lives with his mother and he's he's still concerned with religion and the judgment that might come from from that but he's kind of holding it within him so these characters feel fleshed out already but then really we follow william much much more
1: yeah and what i really loved was like you get three different Perspectives on the same sort of issue. James is more comfortable with himself, and and John isn't. John is fearful, and William is, to a degree, I think he's accepting of himself, in a way. Uh, but but there's also a lot of uh, regrets and a lot of all of that mixed in. But having sort of William be the center of attention really makes everything much more impactful, I think. Because he's the one that outlives some and has to live mm-hmm. with this whole regret. And actually yeah. I love the the name that you gave the first act, which is offense against oneself. And I was just wondering where the inspiration for, for that came.
2: Yeah, so that is the the title of a an article, a pamphlet, a uh, kind of a legal piece that was written by an individual named Jeremy Bentham. He was the main proponent at that time for the liberalization of the sodomy laws and specifically removing the death penalty from it. He, he understood that you could only go so far at that point in time in history. So his first uh, priority was trying to convince that people, kind of pull back at least the death penalty part prison, transportation, that that would remain. But um, his biggest argument, which is a very, you know, in today's term, a a very what they would call libertarian kind of idea of if he's if they're not hurting anyone else, why do you care? You know, if, if, if they're not imposing this on you, let them live their life, let let them be why is this something that you have to be focused on? And it's that fight against the the religious vein that was still going throughout the, the laws at that time, um, or basis for those laws. And um, he was trying to give a, a whole new point of view uh, for that.
0: Yeah, I, th- I think a lot of people who aren't too aware of the development of English history, don't realize that The Victorian era saw a huge upsurge in religious fanaticism again. The Methodists became extremely popular around that time, and it was almost inconceivable around that time to to not be religious. Mm. There was all this talk of morality and public decency, and sexuality was very repressed, and I think we'll see elements of that just in the story, kind of in the background, but just in terms of how the women have to deal with that as well. Um, Yeah. I think it's John's mother who mentions that she didn't have a choice in, in marrying his father either. Yeah. Yeah. Like this wasn't just something that was a structure just to oppress homosexuality. It was, it was like a one mold fits all for everybody, whether they liked it or not. Right. And then, you know, later on in that Victorian period, we're going to get Dickens and we're going to get Darwin and, Monumental changes are going to start to come underway, but at this point, it was a very religious place. Yeah, and I mean, England had actually had a king who was gay, almost certainly as well, James mm-hmm. I in the past, and I think that's reflected at one point in the in the play as well. That you mentioned that it's actually the lower classes that get the brunt of this, and homosexuality in the upper classes is tolerated.
2: Yeah they They still don't agree with it. They kind of just uh, turn turn a blind eye towards it. and you know, I was like, well, that that's them, or if they get caught, they can pay off whomever needs to be paid off. But most of the time it, it's them just turning that blind eye and say, "Well, that's just them. Let them do that
1: that that's very interesting. Did you do a lot of sort of research for the time period in terms of just trying to create a a sort of more realistic environment for the other character for all the characters actually
2: yeah i i i did as much research as as i could but you get to a point where you this isn't a documentary i allowed myself to change things or modify things when necessary this isn't strictly how it was in, in the early 1800s it gives you the the sense of it, but uh, it's it's just kind of surface level stuff for the most part. Only delving down into the the, the crevices when necessary. But but yeah, it, you know, reading as as many textbooks as I can, pieces uh, um from academics about homosexuality during that time and the history of homosexuality throughout England and what what I can pick out and what can I add. You know, there's a there's mention in the, the first act of uh, when they're in one of the uh, safe places, which was called a, a Molly house at the time. Um, They mentioned one of them, uh, the White Swan, had recently been shut down and that was a real one. However, it, it kind of happened in 1810, I think is when it shut down. So, you know, quite a few years before the play actually takes place. Right. Um, but it gives you kind of that, that grounded realness um, uh, of, of history uh, within that.
1: One of the interesting aspects of your story is the apparition of the woman that William is constantly talking to. Everything seems very grounded in reality, but that is the one sort of element that is in the sort of supernatural at first. Mm-hmm. And, and we're questioning at first, when I first read it, uh, when she first comes out it's yeah, obviously it's a figment of his imagination because the other ones can't see her and all this other stuff but the revelation that sort of comes towards the end as to who she is I've found to be very effective why did you decide to weave that in
2: yeah so with the arc of William as I said earlier I really as as I was kind of working on on this piece really wanted to focus, uh, to tell the story of how, um, how an individual becomes who they are in their later life. Uh, kind of the, uh, the Walter White breaking bad kind of, uh, arc of, you know, how do you turn this high school science teacher into, uh, you know, a a drug Lord? What's that downfall? And I really wanted to, to, see one can I write such a story and can can I show this kind of arc of where this person was points in their life that had a huge impact on them and why they are more inclined to make a certain decision than another one and with that I needed to well flesh out William's past uh, what happened to him in the past that made him this this really uh, sometimes charming, sometimes uh, just frustratingly uh, hated person at times that you just want to choke him and shake him. His first uh, kind of big thing was the death of his sister. Historically, we don't know if William had a sister. Um, All we know about William is uh, the year he was born, of course, the year he died what ship he was on that he was transported to to van diemen's land uh what happened when he was there at the penal colony other than that we have no idea so and, does he appear yeah uh,
0: does he appear at any point in the newspaper articles was he mentioned or was it just yes two? Will,
2: william was because um what happened was the way james and john were caught they were both meeting at william's apartment and you know William had the reputation from what his landlords were telling everyone um, at the trial that he had men over all the time, and his landlords were actually spying on him through the keyhole in the door, through an adjacent window. They were actually watching all of this. And so James and John were over at his over at his place. The landlords got a police officer, um, Howard. Robert Valentine and um, Valentine basically burst in and found James and John in the middle of the act, so to speak. Uh, William had left to grab more to drink um, because they ran out. And so part of the belief of why William didn't get the death penalty was because he wasn't actually there, it was just his apartment historically William didn't actually betray James and John in the true story. He he merely was just kind of the the, the person who owned the apartment. So that's why James and John were there at his uh, his place and uh, and how they got caught.
0: Yeah, that's interesting in yeah. in English society as well. And there's still remnants of this. It's it's not very common anymore, but lodgers were often considered definitely not part of the family but it was it was almost well what is going on in my house mm-hmm. this is still my house if you're if you're lodging here you are within the house of the landlord as mm-hmm. opposed to what we think of today as a distant landlord who has bought a property somewhere and lives miles away mm. uh, this this was more like having spare rooms spare areas of the house that they would that they would uh mm. Rent out usually to single bachelors, that, that kind of thing.
1: And actually, that was going to be one of my questions too, which which was whether William actually did betray them in real life. Did that come in in the early drafts that he was going to do that? Was that like an immediate arc for him?
2: For the most part, the true, the actual true thing that happened, it would have been a lot harder to put on stage. And what I mean by that is, for some reason, and we don't really know why, everyone's death penalty was kind of uh, wiped away, but theirs. And we don't know if it was a message. You know, if you are caught for sodomy, death penalty is still on the table. We don't know if it was uh, that kind of message. But for whatever reason, the Privy Council decided you know, that they should still get the death penalty when everyone else didn't. That kind of political intrigue, so to speak, is harder to weave in when you're already dealing with a whole lot of other stuff. And so I needed a new thing, a new push that basically ends the first act of um, the revelation of, of William betraying them and saying that it was their idea that he... Really was blackmailed by them to go along with this. Part of it is he regrets surviving because his sister died, um, the first person he ever loved died, and now James and John, you know, kind of, there's two friends at this time are are about to die as well.
1: Yeah, I think that that change was much more powerful in terms of like creating this very layered character. And and yeah, there were times where I really liked him a lot and there were other times where I just was very sympathetic towards him. Yeah, Even from the beginning there were little traces that there was something about him that made him be the way he was and, and then when we get to the second act and get to explore him and Parker a little bit more it kind of mm-hmm. gives you a much more dimensional character. So how does one decide where to end the first act sort of splitting that?
2: Right now a lot of stage plays are 90 minute pieces and with no intermission, supposedly of people's attention spans and all of that. But we're getting a three hour Avengers movie, you know, coming out. So <laughs> obviously they're not that bad. Right. In regards to this piece, that's a two act play. You are doing the very unfortunate thing of allowing your audience to leave and then hoping that they come back um, during the intermission. And, you know, which an intermission is only usually about 15 minutes, but you're allowing them to leave their seat and trust that the story is intriguing enough that they want to know what happens next. So you want to leave it on some kind of cliffhanger. This kind of has two at the end. The first cliffhanger is the revelation that the woman is actually William's sister in either a hallucination or ghost form it's still up for debate that's the first cliffhanger and then the second is uh william's betrayal of of his friends and so you get uh uh you get those kind of back uh, back-to-back cliffhangers
1: i thought that was great because it very neatly kind of sets up the second act the second half and makes them very distinctive because the first one's very preoccupied with the whole court and sort of like mm-hmm. legal matters. And then we get to a more sort of emotional storytelling, which I, I thought was great.
2: Now that you know these characters, now that you know kind of the basic story and, and what's happening, you can slow down a bit. And th- throughout the first act, you're kind of in this race of um, making sure, you know, everyone knows the, the key players, everyone knows kind of the story. Now that all that's out of the way, now you can kind of pull back and and really delve into the psyche of of these of these characters, and specifically William in filling out his past um because we get one part of the past in the first act with his first love, Parker, in that relationship, and then in the second act, we delve with the aftermath of that and how Parker dies as well as what happened to the sister and you know that second act is just really it's death after death after death you know it's a series of deaths is what that second <laughs> yeah, act.
0: it is a tragedy this play yeah no it is i mean it's just one of those things
1: where like i was both very elated at how intriguing and beautiful the story was but also very upset by it at the same time it was very very extremely effective
0: well, yeah. one thing I'd like to say, just in terms of the idea of tragedy, is simply because of the time that this story takes place, and the laws that are in place, it is inevitable that it will become a tragedy. No matter how independent the spirits of of the young William and the young Parker are, and uh, John and James in in the later generation, there's still nothing that they can do to as long as society is going to come after them, there's not much yeah. that they can do about it.
2: Yeah. Cause you have, a you have William and Parker having a scene together and, you know, Parker's this very optimistic daydreaming individual. William's pretty much a, a realist and Parker is saying, you know, we'll, we'll leave England, you know, we'll, We'll go to Paris. We'll we'll go to America. You know, we'll we'll start a new life someplace else. And and uh, William, even as a, at a young age, and at that scene, he's he's fifteen, and even at that age, he, he knows that's that's not possible, right? And he knows that no matter how good it feels and right that this connection feels, that it it won't last. And uh, Um, I think you, you, even with James, who's a pretty rebellious individual and fight the power, um, you know, modern day kind of Bernie Sanders, AOC type individual, you know, let's just, you know, burn the whole system down and let people live, you know, so to speak. And even in the back of his mind, he knows that he can only push so far before the big system pushes back and he knows he will lose.
0: It's interesting you said the word realist as well, because one of the seeming contradictions in William's character is he thinks there's absolutely no question about him being gay. Even from that young age at 15, Mm -hmm. there's no question about it. Parker kind of teases him about this and suggests you can't know unless you've tried both sides, Mm -hmm. for example. That was really funny scene yeah yeah and but but that is that real. that's what explains that seeming contradiction in that character is that he's very logical about about this and it also is kind of tinged with pessimism at the same time and that's why he feels that he'll never find love again and is spiraling downwards he's certainly trying to be a realist but seeing it in pessimistic terms as as time progresses his his outlook gets seems to get darker and darker
1: what I also really want to... Wh- one of my impressions, going back to the woman, which always felt like it was sort of his conscience. It didn't really feel like it was she was a ghost or anything like that. I felt like it was just his regret speaking to him and trying to come to terms with that. One of the things that they constantly do is that they recite. Yeah, it, kind it's,
2: of, a, it's a nursery rhyme, basically, nursery rhyme. is right. what it is. The the lion and the unicorn yeah. fighting for the crown. And yeah, that's their... Connection that they have that in in the piece we find out that that was the thing that both of them would kind of recite to each other if they were sad or you know if their parents were angry with them or you know that was their connection between each other and that's the thing that really gets William to to know that the woman uh, is his sister somehow she's grown older somehow he's seen her because she died when she was a child. But that's that's the thing that really sparks it, because she's giving hints to him along the way, hints that she thought that he would pick up on. And finally, she had to recite that little nursery rhyme. And that's the thing that really gets him to see who she really is.
0: Yeah, I think I think it's interesting, something well, I've been I've been reading quite a lot of Dr. Young recently, mm-hmm. and his approach to psychoanalysis had all people of one particular gender having another gender within themselves, the the opposite gender within themselves, mm-hmm. kind of repressed, but that the males had a feminine side, and the females have a masculine side that kind of comes out in the unconscious. When I was reading this, i, I that kind of became my reading of it, that mm. that his sister is in some way part of that consciousness that he's been repressing for so long since that childhood incident. Mm. There there seemed to have been a massive shift in him when he decided to go down the path of repression and trying to forget, in in particular drinking to forget is is his main tool. There's some brilliant uh, lines of dialogue about that and the pain he's suffering and that hope of the desperate drinker to erase memories entirely and then ultimately succumbing to the truth that that isn't possible. It will just emerge in some other way in this this form of almost borderline psychosis that he's going through when he ends up on the convict ship and, and starts becoming sick when he reaches Tasmania.
2: Yeah, yeah, because you think that you can just forget about the past and, and just let it die, let it be in the past and just never deal with it. But you know, it's always there, you you can't escape it. It's not this physical thing, but it's it's always inside of you. And it always has an effect on you and your environment. And, you know, the environment has an effect on you and, and how your personality um, grows and you as an individual. And what I of myself put into this piece with William is, you know, there's a lot of stuff in my past that I just wouldn't allow myself to deal with. And I found them popping up in, you know, kind of bursting out of the bottle, so to speak, and just causing havoc in the present. And you eventually have to just deal with it and understand it and, and reconcile it. Real, William is the the question to myself while writing this of, Am I going to become this individual who lives this miserable life that lives um, without really reconciling that past? Or am I going to learn from it and move on from it? And it was a question I was asking myself. And I think I've come out on the right side. I hope. Yeah. Um, and it's it's a but, very
0: mature question. I think that response that you found that when people had read your work and they thought you were much older than you really are.
2: Yeah, that kind it's, of is, is shown a, by that. Yeah, yeah, because there's a lot of me in this. And, you know, of course, a writer's always putting themselves in it in a piece, no matter if they want to or not. It's you're in there, but ending, you know, finally finishing the writing of it it shocked me how much of me was in it and scared me a lot because, you know, why, why the hell did I put that in there? You know, I don't want, I don't want that in there. Um, <laughs> but no, it, all of it stayed. I was kind of uh, convinced that uh, I, was, I was told by someone else who, who had been reading the play from the very beginning and all the different drafts that I needed to keep it in there, which I'm glad I did.
0: Yeah, um, and I, I think it comes across more as your... Your voice, or kind of the hand that's guiding the the maturity of the writing, as opposed to it seeming to reveal dark dark aspects of you or anything like mm. that. I think it comes yeah. across as human universals. I think you've touched right. on mm. certain points where people will experience these things in different ways, but the these uh, sensations of regret and shame and other things that. That william himself can't deal with and again this is at a time in history when the resources for dealing with conditions depression things like this simply were non-existent yeah even sigmund freud hasn't been born yeah. when when this play is taking place so <laughs> modern all you modern had... psychology is is miles away at this point
2: yeah and all you had was drinking you know because you couldn't yeah. really talk to anyone about it you know, you you couldn't just spark up a conversation with with someone on the street, you know, say, hey, I'm going through this this thing. You know, I, I kind of like guys um, couldn't couldn't do that, you know, so you you know, since you can't talk about it, you can't let it out. You know, you just bury it. And the easiest way is drinking um, at that point in time. So
0: and th- this yeah. uh, this really carried through and it's it's certainly been a strong element of british culture uh one story i can think of is there was a documentary about the railway men the uh the british soldiers who were uh, prisoners of war of the japanese in world war ii mm-hmm. and in one interview i heard with one of the men who had had lived through that experience and returned to england and was being interviewed for this documentary he mentioned how he would get nightmares in the middle of the night and wake up screaming and strangling his wife beside him. So he said, so I had to move into the spare room. <laughs> Th- that attitude of yeah. just just pretend yep. everything's okay and just try and move on with your <laughs> life instead of actually addressing any of these problems that you're facing yeah. is just keep it down and try and move on. And that was in the 60s, 70s of the last century. So mm. this, is, this has been a current in, in British society for a very long time.
1: And also, but what I found was that was very beautiful about your work is that you don't have to be homosexual or anything like that to really understand the the regret and the shame and the suppression and and all of that stuff. Because, you know, like Will was saying, it's a very universal thing. Anyone can relate to that. Everyone has things that they regret or they look Mm -hmm. back and they don't want to face. So I think that's what I think a a good story really does. Because you went so specific, it became universal. I mm-hmm. think that's usually kind of how I see it. I have a question, you know, as a writer, just I'm very curious to know. I usually, when I write, I kind of have the beginning and the ending sort of clear when I first start writing. And it's almost like, okay, how do I get from point A to point B? How mm-hmm. how do you approach that? Did you have that ending in mind already?
2: For the most part, there is a few specific throughout that ending that, I, I didn't know, and that kind of surprised me when I actually wrote it. But for the most part, I I knew it was going to end with his death, and I knew we were going to end up in the uh, the the hospital, which was a hospital and an insane asylum combined, which is kind of odd. But yeah, so I knew that's where it was going to end. I knew it was going to end with his death, and I I didn't know everything about about that ending. I didn't know how the woman was going to kind of figure into it. Of course, at the end, you have this big confrontation between the woman and, and William, uh, he and the sister. And it's this this past past versus the present fight that's going on. And the tragedy is neither side wins and uh, they, they both lose and uh, both are stubborn and aren't are unwilling to shift or they try to, you know, William tried to, to make a deal and says, well, if you do this, then I'll do that. That's, that's not how it works.
1: Yeah. There's no real resolution to the whole thing, which is what makes the ending very effective because if it would have been wrapped up really nicely, I don't think there would have been much to think about, which is what I really, really liked about it.
2: Yeah. Cause I, I, for the longest time, I wanted to find a way to end it on a happy note. And there was kind of buried in a drawer. Uh, there was a, an alternate scene uh, ending of William was going to die. And then somehow Parker was going to come back and they were going to walk off the stage together. And because now both of them are dead and they can actually be together. And I was like, this is crap. You know, <laughs> this is this isn't how it ends. Right. This isn't how reality ends. You know, you got to make it sad and, and and brutal. It totally went against everything else. No matter how much I wanted that ending to happen, it was just not going to happen. Uh,
0: and uh, I think, in terms of William's journey through through his unconsciousness, his journey through the mentor in his head, his his sister, that kind of thing, he never really gets to the stage where he's accepted all of his past. He's he is unable to forgive himself, and mm-hmm. so he couldn't really return to parker without having done that i think that's why it would feel it's it would be a lot of, yeah. Yeah.
1: at this <laughs> it almost yeah. feels like a little bit mathematical and way. yeah that's a great that's a great point
0: i think it would be interesting to go to the other characters in particular elizabeth mm. i think that is an interesting side story that yeah. tells mm-hmm. us a lot about this i really really like elizabeth I found her to be a very strong and forward
1: thinking woman.
2: Yeah, she, I would say she was the hardest character to write in this because one, I knew I had to have women in the piece. It couldn't just be male heavy, even though it is a male heavy um, story. And, you know, I needed strong women. And John's mother is, I would say, a strong woman, but in a very different way. And then uh, James's wife Elizabeth, and we only get uh, John's mother in that one scene. But you know, the, it kills me every time I read that that scene. And I I, I never liked your father, by I married him anyway. And you know, women are just meant to you know lie back, open our legs, and think of England, you know, and have children, you know. But no, uh, Elizabeth was was really hard to figure out, and there's a lot more of her in the the earlier versions, she had a a bigger part, but to kind of condense the story and focus the story, she was one of the characters that got cut the most, which meant that the scenes that she were, she was in, I really had to expand her in those and really have her be this counterweight to everything else that was going on. And I, I remember it was early on, one of the first readings of it, it was a private reading up in Chicago with a few actor friends. And we were having kind of a talk back uh, at the end of it between us. And it was at the be- towards the beginning of the play, you find out that James and Elizabeth had just lost a child. Uh, it was a miscarriage. And uh, the baby is still in the womb. So it's still in there. And I had kind of James just basically just holding her and everything and and she was like you know he he wouldn't she wouldn't let him hold her because of she's like this walking tomb and and this is coming from from a female actor you know and she was like you because James places his hand on her uh, or around her and she kind of pushes him away and the act the female actor was like she you need to allow her to give that consent You know, and that really informed a lot about that relationship um, between those two and how she kind of, Elizabeth evolved from this kind of one dimensional, yeah, he has a wife, you know, character to this hopefully fledged out uh, individual who has just as much to lose as James does, because she, she is supportive of James. I don't think she fully understands it. I don't think she fully understands why he likes men, but she knows he loves her. And that was kind of the agreement that, you know, you, you know, have sex with whoever you want, but always come home to me. Mm. And that was kind of her deal with him and how the only way she knew to keep him in her life instead of trying to repress it like John's mother was was basically doing, you know. And just make this deal. And, um, but, you know, if he was ever found out, uh, her and their two children, uh, one uh, child at the time, was going to lose everything as well. And they were going to be uh, kicked out of their home. They were, they were going to be on the street and they weren't going to survive it either. So.
0: Yes, and the social circumstances of this mm-hmm. era in particular. And then this is what Dickens writes about a lot. It's orphans in the streets and in the orphanages. And it's very, it's almost inconceivable for women at this time as well to think of starting an independent life and having mm-hmm. a job that supports them and their family. She She kind of relies on him, but there, there is a sense that there is genuine love there. It's, it's more like the love Absolutely. between family members because there's no sexual attraction on his part. It's, mm-hmm. it's not something he's able to. It, it, he's kind of splitting his life out in mm-hmm. in these two different ways, and that's his response to this imposition from above, from society. There is no gay, there is no gay marriage. There's no adoption for men. That he couldn't have a family right. either by having by falling in love with the man so right. they're all they're all stuck it's 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 interesting to see this this play where so many characters are stuck yeah
1: no and it's a, I it was very refreshing like i said for her to be different because even other films that i've seen that deal with similar subject matter the the wife or the girlfriend or the girl who has a crush on the the gay guy always ends up being not a villain, but, you know, very upset or there's a lot of scorn there. Or there's a lot of negativity. But I think this yeah. is the first time I, I've read something or, you know, that it's quite the opposite. Like, mm. she's well, very much accepting supportive.
0: without the complexity, which I think came up in Bohemian Rhapsody. That was one of my main oh, concerns that. about that film was yeah. the way that uh, Freddie Mercury's girlfriend simply knows he's gay, accepts it, and then they move on. As mm. opposed to, there's a lot more nuance in this kind of story. of, yeah, of yeah. these two having to find a way to live together. We might we might see some of this in in Rocket Man because Elton John lived a similar mm. uh, thing. Mm-hmm. He, he was married for for many years as right. well. Yeah, no. The first thing I thought of
1: was *Brokeback Mountain* and Michelle Williams. I mean, that was a a great story too. But it's Mm -hmm. usually that type of, you know, subplot that usually happens in those type of stories. So yeah, no, this was pretty great, especially given the time period.
2: Yeah, and this deal between them really was pretty intact until John came around, and John's kind of the the wrench in the deal. And for the first time, James is really feeling. Love for a man, not just the the physical attractiveness, um, but actual love. And Elizabeth confronts him with that, and this dynamic shifts. And you know, it's it's kind of uh, now she has to decide. You know, of course they're not going to stay together because he's in prison and he's uh, James is going to be executed. But um, this betrayal uh, that betrayal as well and you know you have the betrayal of 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 william to james and john but you have this betrayal of, of james to elizabeth and betraying the deal that they made and you know you fell in love with with one of them and you told me you never were going to do that you weren't going to put us in harm and now look what you've done and you know i think she still she still loves him she still cares for him but their their entire world has come crashing down because of it.
0: And Elizabeth doesn't trust William. That's made very clear mm-hmm. in the conversations between her and James. Is her lack of trust simply because she fears for what would happen to James? Or is there something yeah. about William that it, he, there, there is a general sense that most characters find
2: him untrustworthy
0: for whatever reason?
2: He's a survivor, but he's also pretty reckless. And, you know, being the drunk. He opens his mouth. You know, he's inviting men over every single night. And obviously, the landlords know about it. Obviously, people can see the the trail of men to his apartment. So people know what's going on. And whereas James is more secretive, more private, he only goes to places that he knows he's going to be safe. And every once in a while, he'll he'll the the rebel inside of him will come out, and you know he'll talk about something openly on on the street or something. And and John's kind of shutting him up, but for the most part, he he knows how to hide it because he has to. Um, whereas William is kind of the opposite.
1: Also, I, I'm just curious because John and James are very different from each other. Mm-hmm. And the only sort of information I was able to pull up on both of them was that people came forward when they were on trial and a lot of people said that James was a good man and no one Mm -hmm. said anything about John. Did that influence Mm -hmm. the way that you kind of wrote their characters?
2: Yeah. um, the, The testimony did quite a bit, but a lot of it was how do you touch on these themes of religion versus just personal liberty and you know, how do you bring all of that stuff in that was kind of circulating around the time in a very natural way? And, and the best way to do that was have these two center figures be kind of those two, the megaphones, so to speak, of those ideas. One, you know, John being quite religious and, and faithful and struggling with that faith and what he feels inside, yet what he's supposed to feel. Um, what the church tells him to feel, um, what society tells him to feel, how James is, you know, let's, why can't we just, you know, it's, it's really that the first wave of republicanism, so to speak, Mm -hmm. of really just let us live our lives. You know, why do we need this big burgeoning system bearing down and controlling us, you know, let us control our own lives and being that rebel it just sparked that uh, that that conversation between them
0: yeah it's it's interesting to think as well in english politics at this time you had a conservative party called known as the tories at this mm-hmm. point and they are traditional conservatives but the opposition wasn't a socialist party for yeah. it, it, this isn't going to happen for a very long time we start to see the foundations of debates that are still very Mm-hmm. current going on for for people at this point
1: yeah and it's also kind of a nice mirror like their relationship with the mirror between parker and william there's a mm-hmm. similar sort of tug of war that they they're both kind of going through which really amplifies that struggle that you were talking about you know what one's more accepting one more a little bit more uh honest about how they feel while they're the other one's suppression there's a lot of and which kind of gives them the, the sort of dark characteristics. You know, James is a much more light and alive and passionate. And mm-hmm. in William's case, uh, Parker's, he's the one that's the romantic. And was that something that you were conscious of, of as well when you were writing these two sort of parallel love stories?
2: Yeah, you know, I, I really wanted it to be, James and John are really the embodiment of the, the opposing sides of society on um, the the that fight of what is this society going to be um and the world's going to be, and then really, with William and Parker, it was a more personal fight and an internal fight, whereas the others was an external one. The fight happening with William with himself, you know in, inside himself, um but also this this idea of who who am I? who, who do I want to be? You know, what kind of life do I, do I want to live with James and John? It's what kind of life should we live and what kind of world should we live in? Um, you kind of have those two kind of different forms of, of that fight, uh, happening between them.
1: Okay. So one question that I also forgot to ask earlier, but you said you wrote this, it took you seven years to write this entire story. Mm -hmm. um how consistent was that was it something that you as a writer were chipping away day after day or did you have other projects that were coming in and out or was there um time sort of like towards the later years of making or writing this that just propelled you full force
2: yeah uh it was it was pretty consistent you know i would take a, a couple months off here and there because i would hate whatever what i was doing and got frustrated with it and couldn't figure out how to tell the story. I knew the story that I wanted to tell. I just didn't know how to tell it. Mm. And one point I had a a version of it that it was about this writer trying to figure out how to write a story about mm-hmm. that of, about this true story and he couldn't figure it out and and it was going back and forth and you know I was just getting so frustrated with it from time to time and but I would kind of just throw it away and then it would always draw me back in because I, like I said earlier, I I felt that responsibility to it. Um, I felt the responsibility and I wanted to do it first before anyone else decided to to do it. Um, you know, my big fear was Tony Kushner was going to come across this somehow. And, you know, he was on take the limelight from me and, you know, Spielberg (laughs) was going to direct the film version and it's like, well, there, there, there I go. But, um, But no, I I, it was pretty consistent, and and um, once I kind of figured out it's William was the center of it, and we were kind of going to do this back and forth jumping. A lot of it was shuffling around scenes, rewriting scenes, tweaking them, and seeing what was the right combination. You know, once I figured out all the puzzle pieces, Mm. you know what they actually looked like. Now it was putting them together and uh, seeing which one fit best here or there, and um, so it it took a while.
0: It, it's funny you mention uh, writing a story about being unable to write the story. There's a <laughs> uh, there's a Spanish author Javier Cercas, and mm-hmm. his books are that he he does that he he starts out with the premise. And then explains why he was completely incapable of ever writing that story. And yeah. it turns out to be a completely incredible book. Because he ends up solving the difficulty of starting to write by starting that way. He I'm he interested. has some very interesting books. He writes in Spanish, but most of mm-hmm. them are translated now into English. He has one about his uncle, who was a, a fascist in the Spanish Civil War, and how to deal with the knowledge of that in, in modern society now that Spain is a, a democracy again. Right. And yeah. it's all about him not knowing how to tell that story.
1: That is very interesting. I think I'm going to try that because I'm kind of going through <laughs> a writer's blog, So I'm going to implement that tonight.
2: <laughs> yeah, you find out a lot when you add yourself as a character in a piece mm. and you're you're that person trying to figure out this thing in, you know, it's an inception level levels you know right. uh, you're yeah, in the dream yeah. within the dream within the dream and you're just trying to figure it out and it, it just gets you to think in a different way uh, about it
0: i like so. that that's really cool mm-hmm. i i want to talk very quickly again about the women in the piece mm-hmm. the male characters they are on their own journeys where they're they're making decisions and it's society that is standing in their way but they they find it very hard to find compassion for themselves The worst case in particular is is William, who is literally torturing himself every single day with being unable to to deal with the choices he's made and the the life he's lived. And it's interesting how the female characters are the ones who allow them to realize that they should feel compassion for themselves, that they should should forgive. His sister talks about Mm -hmm. forgiveness. Elizabeth as well is is so supportive of James who would, it seems that James would be in a more unstable state without her, without her as his rock that keeps him grounded.
1: They're very sort of nurturing, except for John's mom, who yeah. is a product of her, her time. Exactly. One thing I wanted to talk about that I forgot was like, in the flashback when the sister dies, that whole, the way that whole story unfolds was very heartbreaking to read because it was just it's towards the end kind of puts everything into context Mm -hmm. kind of reveals a little bit more about actually a lot more about William and but at the same time it's like they're kids so there's this sort of complexity there where they're, they're young they didn't really know better and I think it kind of speaks to at least me personally but I think a lot of people when you're a kid you know there's a lot of good and bad that you're not quite you know what I mean obviously mm-hmm. this is an extreme case so you know she is drowning and he doesn't do anything about it yeah uh, which is a very intense backstory to give him but it makes you understand why he is the way he is but she comes back as a very compassionate being she's trying to help him and she can't move on I think is what she tells him until he can forgive himself yeah yeah which is i think very very powerful so i think you know the presence of these women in the story is very very positive which is really great to read
2: yeah it's it's going back to this idea of both sexes need each other biologically for this for the species to survive um at least for right now um who knows what science will will bring us but um because both have their own unique Qualities and and strengths and and you 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 need that that balance you know you need that balance between the masculine and the feminine and sometimes you need the the feminine to be that caring and supportive individual and sometimes like Anna you know John's mother you just need that person to kind of kick you in the ass and force you in a, a particular way and this is how it is you need to do this whether you like it or not. William has a I think it's towards the end of the first at a question of am, am I a good man? You know, this question of am, am I a good man? You know, am I a good person? And and the woman and the woman responds that, you know, not right now, but you used to be, getting you to to rethink you are a good man. You're you you are not right now, you used to be, and you can be again if you want to be. You're the only one kind of holding yourself back and kind of pushing they're they're kind of pushing them to to make those decisions the the right decisions so
0: yeah this is hugely important i think it's so relevant for when we talk about these universal themes in particular Mm -hmm. and the the reader or the the audience member it's going to be how that reflects within their own conscience and they think being being good isn't easy it's going to be mm-hmm. hard work. The reason that people end up in the state that William's in is because they think the hard work isn't worth it. Mm-hmm. And so he goes to this this fulfillment of pleasure response to his life, but mm-hmm. it's not leading him anywhere, and it's certainly not going to allow him to forgive himself or find love in the future. Mm-hmm. And it, it's just this sense that it, it might have worked for a little while, but once he's got to this age, there was a yeah. point where he, he needed to address this much much earlier on and he he thought it was going to be too hard and and then there's that sense of really underlying a lot of this is fear. Yeah. It, he was afraid to be who he should have been or who he had the potential to be.
1: Which is a tragic aspect of it, because even if he did, the society wasn't really gonna let him, you know, do that. And I think that kind of Uh, you know even in today's times where it is you know acceptable to be gay and it's obviously a completely different time in most uh, you know areas yeah obviously there's still countries that are far from that but you know there's still a lot of mental imprisonment you know Mm -hmm. there's still a lot of people who struggle with this identity you know they can't admit it to themselves there's that struggle because religion is still prevalent especially Mm -hmm. in this country i feel like it's in certain aspects in certain parts of this country especially so there's still a sort of mental imprisonment that i think that this story even though it's set more than 100 years ago it's still it's still mm-hmm. very relevant in that sense
2: and yeah like times changed specifically in the west i hope it will uh, eventually happen for everyone but you know it's just it takes time you know, yeah. it doesn't change overnight, unfortunately.
1: I've spent a lot of time with, the, you know, the younger generations, the ones that are in high school still. And mm-hmm. it's a completely different perspective. You know, the oh, thought yeah. of, you know, it's like a non-thing if someone's gay. Like, it's yeah. it's a completely different world. So, every time I, you know, overhear conversations, I get inspired because I'm like, all right. So, there's a little bit of hope in that sense. Yeah. You know, the younger generations are are getting it.
0: uh i don't know if i have any more questions (laughs) no no we we did a very question heavy one but i think it's there's been so many fascinating areas to explore with this story
1: yeah yeah no thank you so much for you know give us you know taking the time to talk to us and congratulations on a very very great script I, i love it and i think you know there's a good future for it i think
2: Thank you guys for having me, and thank you for the kind words. You know I, I'm, I'm still surprised when people like it, because you know this little pessimist uh, voice in the back of my head like, this isn't going to go anywhere you know and, well in you.: um,
0: Of course, and I think that's also very important for people to to think about. Not only is the, the critic in your head, it's, it's not going to serve you while you're trying to write. Mm-hmm. And it's it's not going to serve you when you hand over your writing to someone else. Yeah. But it will help you with editing and and improving when you when you detach yourself a little bit. Mm, but absolutely. then, um, you don't realize how your story might affect someone else. And it's 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 clear here as well that certain aspects of the story resonated with with Alan, and then certain parts of the story resonated with me, and. And it's the fact that it has this complete kind of universe of, of feelings and, and dealing with this, this common theme, but but in all these different characters that deal with it in different ways, and yeah, you don't you just don't realize how it's going to affect different people. So, thank you for for writing it. Yes, thank you, thank you very much. Yes. and are you going to Austin this year as well?
2: Um, I'm I'm thinking about it. I I haven't decided. Just to see, because the great part about Austin was meeting all the people and all the contacts and, and inspiring individuals and writers that you meet and everyone so supportive of each other's writing and cheering you on, you know. And so to be around that again, it, it'd be worth it, um, even without a piece there. So Awesome.
0: Uh, <laughs> thanks again for taking so much time to talk to us yeah. and everything. And- yeah, well, thank you.
2: But no, this has been great.
0: So that was our discussion with Benjamin Folk. Please do check out our website, the21strewrite.com. That's spelt with a two and a one. The 21 rewrite the the21strewrite.com. And feel free to contact us or leave a comment if you have any feedback. There's a growing library of episodes to help you learn more about screenplays and the process of writing them please do recommend the show to any friends who you feel might enjoy it. Coming next, we have a trio of episodes looking at the screenplays to the three films directed by Damien Chazelle, starting with Whiplash in two weeks from now. So thanks for listening, and goodbye.